we're going to we're going to begin. You should, your name should be Maggie. Good idea. <laughs> All right, so let's begin with um, prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we really express gratitude for this opportunity to study your word in depth. And um, we, we want to integrate our working lives with our faith. And we're so glad that you speak to that. Help us to understand. Um, help us to live out our faith. Help us to be authentic Christians. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So a very quick review from last week. Uh, we saw that the, uh, the critical biblical understanding of humanity, the, the, the Bible's doctrine of anthropology, is that we are imago dei. Uh, which is a Latin phrase which means we are uh, in the image of God. And uh, because we're in the image of God, therefore we must imitate Him, right? Uh, another way to put it, another sort of parallel doctrine is that we are sons of God, right? Sons look like their fathers. Um, and how do we fulfill our sonship? We look at what God does and we, uh, we copy Him. And when we look at uh, the account of creation, what do we see God doing? Um, an essential part of who God is is that God works, right? Um, if you look at the creation account, it's interesting that it isn't just this sort of snap of the fingers and then the whole world springs into being. Uh, I suppose it could be like that, but if you look at the creation account, it's actually dragged out. Um, and you see him creating the world in six days. Uh, why does he take six days? Not because there's so much to do and he needs six days to do it, um, but to show us God who is structuring things, organizing things. And uh, there's a very important verse in Genesis 1-2 that says that in the beginning, the world, the, what is it? The earth was without form and void, and void, right? That's very important. Um, that when, at the beginning of creation, you see the whole world, and it's just sort of this disorganized, chaotic, raw material. And the image you should think of is, is God at his workbench with this lump of clay. Or, or you should think of God in his studio, and it, there's a blank uh, canvas, and he has his paintbrush poised, right? Or um, think of God at a at a typewriter, and uh, with blank sheets of paper, and he's about to compose a novel. And so that's the the image we're supposed to have is that here are these raw materials. The world was without form and void. It's interesting that it's in that two step process, right? Welcome, join us. The handouts are right there. And, and what do we see God create in, in, in Genesis? We see God create this beautiful garden, Eden. Welcome. We'll pause to let you guys filter in. <laughs> and so let me create the world. This is the world. 
<laughs> and he creates this beautiful garden, right? Eden. And Eden was not just a testing ground for human holiness, right? It's not just, you know, can human beings obey? That's true. Uh, but also, it was a prototype of what humanity was supposed to do to the whole world. So if you look at uh, the creation mandate that God gives to humanity in light of their image, in light of them being uh, sons and uh, images of God, we're supposed to, um, we're supposed to, what is it, uh, uh, what's the language? Go, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. So we're supposed to go, and we're supposed to expand the Garden of Eden. God leads the rest of the world, 99% of the world, uh, wild and untamed, and we're supposed to go and transform it, right? Not exploit, not destroy nature, but um, but transform it into something beautiful and useful, and ultimately, not just a garden, but it's a garden city, right? And uh, how do we know that? We looked at, uh, this is my replication of the city, um, how do we know it's supposed to be a garden city? Uh, we know because if we go to the end of the story, we see the New Jerusalem, and we see the garden has become this beautiful city filled with humanity, filled with this uh, interaction of creativity and density. And if you look at that, therefore, uh, the Garden of Eden is therefore the paradigm of all work. Right? Um so we're still in review. And, you know, people say, okay, what kind of garden was it? Because, you know, we sort of think of it as, you know, there's vegetable gardens, gardens to provide food. And then we also think of gardens as, like, landscaped, you know, beautiful flower gardens. Well, it's both. We, uh, it's a garden that gives us life, gives us health. It's also a garden that we enjoy and we look at and it's beautiful. And it's the paradigm of all work. So think about what is teaching. Teaching is taking the raw materials of the human mind. A little child, I know because uh, I've been trying to teach Judah how to read, and uh, it's incredibly hard. Uh, the word will be like dog. I'll say, what is that word? And he'll say, you know, bat. And I'll say, okay, what's the first letter? He'll say D. All right, what's the word now? Bat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um so it's it's uh, it's taking the raw materials of his unformed mind and you're pouring into it, you're you're developing it, you're cultivating it. That's teaching. What is hairdressing? You're taking the raw material of hair, chaotic, you know, messy, and you're making it something beautiful. What is bartending? You're taking the raw material of human beings um, and you're facilitating friendships, you're facilitating communication, and you're making beautiful drinks. So all work, custodial work, medical work, IT work, retail work, financial services, everything is a gardening, right? That God says, go and go and do what your father has done. All right, so that's review. Any quick questions from the quick review? All right, so let's go on to the new material. So in the Bible, work and rest go together. And there's a rhythm. And we cannot understand work until we understand rest and likewise. So... Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 20. Let me read it for you. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, 
or your female servant, or your livestock, or your or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the first thing I want you guys to notice about this account is just the, the ratio of work to rest, right? Right, the ratio, you'll notice, is six to one. And I think that's pretty significant that it just shows us that work is so foundational to our makeup that it's one of the few things we can do in significant doses without harming ourselves. And notice the ratio is not one day of work, six days of rest. It's not three and a half days of work, three and a half days of rest. But it's six days of work to one day of rest. So it just reinforces that uh, human beings were created to work. Right? So that work is not just to make money, but it's this deep, it's deeply meaningful to the human condition. It's how we make ourselves useful to others and to the community and how we ultimately image God. You cannot image God unless you're working, right? So if you are on disability, there's this episode that I remember watching on The Wire. I don't know if you've seen uh, the, the HBO show The Wire. I think it's the last season. There's these two really incompetent policemen, and their whole goal is to get on disability. Because apparently in Baltimore... <coughs> If you injure yourself as a policeman, you, you 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 draw a paycheck for the rest of your life at almost full salary. So that's their whole goal. It's like, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could just somehow sustain a minor injury that 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 allows me never to work again and I can just draw a paycheck. There's something if you understand the biblical worldview, there's something deeply tragic and perverse, not just because you're exploiting um uh what is it, public resources, but just you, you, you would never want a situation where you just simply, like, if you're a trust fund kid, that's a lamentable situation. If you're just living and spending money, but you want to work, you want to contribute, right? Um, all right, so what does this passage show us? It shows us the importance of rest. And rest is not just a physiological necessity so that we can recharge our batteries and then keep working, right? It's not, rest is not just the pause in between work, but because notice, God rested, right? And why does God rest? It's not like God is creating the world, and after six days, he's like, (sighs) right? He's like winded, he needs to take a break. Of course not, God doesn't get tired, he doesn't get fatigued. And so what does this tell us? It tells us three things. Um, The first thing is that rest in and of itself is good and life-giving, right? Because God models it for us. So it's not just, rest is not the absence of work, simply, but it's the presence of reflection and enjoyment. Because if you look throughout the creation days, right, at at the end of each day, God says, it's good. And then on the sixth day, he says, God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. So the image we have is like God is sitting at his workbench, and he's uh, creating this beautiful sculpture with clay, and at and at the end of his toils, he, he pulls back, he stands up, and he looks at his creation, and he says, wow, it's amazing, right? It's, it's beautiful. He's delighting in what he's doing. And that is what uh, the Sabbath day God is inviting us to do as well. Not just to take delight and enjoy our own work, but to delight in God's work. Um, I told you one of the things I've, I sort of picked up semi-enjoyment is uh, gardening, and... 
you know, I think that's really, you know, so gardening is something that I do when I'm resting. Um, and uh, I think it's amazing. Like, there's this house plant that Christina bought. Actually, it's not a house plant, it's a potted plant, and we put it by the door. But because of the way the sun works, it's mostly in the shade all the time. And uh, so what's amazing to me is that at first it was like evenly distributed, but now all the leaves and branches in the back are bare. It's all dead and gone. And then all the leaves are in the front, and then there are new branches that are just like this, right? Because they're like hoping for some sunlight, right? Because it's in, it's in the shaded uh, entryway. I look at that and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. How does a plant know that? Without conscious intelligence, somehow there's signaling mechanisms that I don't understand. The plant says, get rid of these leaves. They're not doing anything. Put out new leaves right here. Right? Um, sometimes I want to mess with the plant and just like turn it around. <laughs> but that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to delight in all the good things that God has given us. Um, I take uh, this, the, the latter half of Sunday off and then all of Monday off. And uh, one of the things that my family likes to do is we like to go to Barnes and Noble. Is it Barnes and Noble or Borders at Hacienda? Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. Yeah. They're all generically the same to me. So <laughs> <laughs> so we just love to go there and we just love to, to go to the children's book section and read. And, and that's, that's what Christine and I used to do before we had children. We used to date at bookstores. And uh, so... That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to enjoy God's creation. The second thing um, that uh, the, the, the doctrine of rest teaches us is that rest is for worship. If you look at uh, Psalms, if you look at uh, Hebrews, uh, the word rest has a very deep meaning. It's not just cessation of work, but it's like rest from enemies. It's rest from sin and temptation. So... The purpose of the day of rest is there, therefore to come into the presence of God, to adore and to praise Him, to, to, to stand still and know that He's God. Uh, and therefore we need uh, Sunday as a formal day of worship, right? So that's the second point. Third point, this is very important. Um, the fact that God gives us a full day of rest purposefully limits our work. Because... If you think about it, especially if you don't have something truly physically taxing, I suppose, um, it is possible to work nonstop. You can work seven days a week. And you can probably keep it up for several years before eventually you will break down. Um, but the fact that God mandates and says, I want you to rest for a day, what does that, what does that tell us? It tells us that work is not the ultimate meaning in life. Um, that we have to to rest, and I don't have it printed for you in uh, Deuter- uh, I don't have it printed for you in the bulletin. But let me read to you very quickly Deuteronomy chapter five. Um, if you know the Bible, you know that the uh, uh, the Ten Commandments are printed twice: once in Exodus chapter twenty, once in Deuteronomy chapter five. It's repeated. One of the uh, um, um, conventions of uh, biblical literature is that anytime anything is repeated in a parallel text, uh, it's very important that you look at the differences. And whatever the differences are, that tells you the meaning uh, of the two, the two texts. So if you look at uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, so verses 8 through 10, identical in both passages. right? Don't do any work. 
uh, you're a male servant, female servants, you know, don't do anything. And then in Exodus 20, it tells us, for God made the heavens and the uh, earth, and he rested on the seventh day. And then it says, therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Right? So he's talking about the sanctity of the day. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, let me just read you the, the, the passage that's different. Verse 15, listen. He says, uh, the, uh, the text says, you shall remember that you were, so why should we rest? You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day holy. So, what's the difference? The difference in Deuteronomy is that we're told you need to rest because you were slaves in Egypt. So, what does that tell us? Well, if you remember the experience of the Israelites in, in Egypt, they were slaves, meaning they never got to rest. Slaves don't get days of rest. You work seven days a week. You're, you're under the lash. And therefore, what does this tell us about rest? It tells us that the purpose of rest is to prevent slavery, a.k.a. workaholism. Um, to avoid the, uh, to, to free us from the idolatry of work, so that if you cannot rest, what does that mean? You're under the lash of some cruel slave master. You're a slave to greed, you're a slave to ambition. Um, taskmasters far more cruel than Pharaoh, far less forgiving. And so Sabbath is a declaration of freedom from the tyranny of work. And let me just step aside and, and say that this for me is a, is a, is a huge um, struggle for me and temptation for me. Uh, I definitely struggle with workaholism. I uh, definitely violate the Sabbath day all the time. Um, and why can't I stop working? I think if you can't stop working, you have to really pause and look into your soul and say, what's going on? And what are you so afraid of that you can't take the day off? And you have to ask yourself, is it financial anxiety? Is it career performance? Is it your ambition? Because if you take a day off, absolutely, you will not be, in the short run at least, you will not be as effective, you will not be as productive as your colleagues. So you'll take a hit. And therefore the question is, can you trust God? Right? Can you, can you, can you have, um, can you accept some degree of modesty and a, a truncated um, success level and and obey and just rest, right? So this is, I have to tell myself this all the time, that Sabbath is not a burden, it's not this onerous rule, um, but it's for our flourishing. Uh, Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? So the Sabbath rules are not there to burden us, you know, you, um, you can't pick fruit when you're walking or something like that. That was a debate with the Pharisees. Um, but the Sabbath is there for our flourishing, for our long-term flourishing, um, and to teach us that the ultimate meaning of life is not work. Any, any questions before we go on to the curse of work on the Sabbath? A lot of people say, what if I work on Sundays? Uh, a lot of people in the medical profession uh, do work or other helping professions or, uh, or uh, maybe you're, you're, you're a policeman. Um, so that's fine. I work on Sunday. Uh, so I think just the principle of rest to work is what's important. You do need to take time 
where you stop work, you spend time with your family, you, you cultivate your relationships. You just can't be a working machine. Because if you're a working machine, that's really the stats. Like, you always want to know, how do I know if I'm, if I'm under idolatry? You want to know if you're under the idolatry of work? Can you rest? Can you stop working? Any, any questions? Yes. I guess this is too many what ifs, but like people who are in the economic situation that they have to do three jobs, four jobs, right? To to live. Um. So yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Um, I think ultimately we don't live in an ideal world. Uh, but I would say that to the degree that the, to the best degree that is possible. You should try to create a day off for yourself and to take the financial hit. That means you, you have to adopt a, a more modest lifestyle. You have to make financial sacrifices. Um, I used to work in retail. And uh, I would say, can I have Sunday off? And my supervisor was like, I don't think so. <laughs> so it required me to wheel and deal with my coworkers. And, 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 and make arrangements. It required me to spend a lot of my own personal capital so that I can get some degree of Sundays off. I think like if you prioritize it, if, if it's a priority in your life, it's possible. You can do it. Um, we do live in a seven-day-a-week a work environment, and it's so easy just to go with the flow. And just to relax and just let yourself go down that stream. So you have to swim against the stream. You have to like fight against culture. Christians are called to be countercultural. That's one area, I think. Even if it meant that if you were living in poverty, and that would mean more poverty. <laughs> I think anytime you you present hypotheticals in which you're at the margins, then yeah, it requires some degree of. Calculation, balance, finesse. So uh, there's no hard and fast rule. Yeah. I'm not going to condemn right, right, a, right. A, a family if they're in poverty, and if they if they say, "Oh, then I'm not going <laughs> to do this Sunday work," then that just means less meals for my family. I'll say, "Well, please, you know, don't starve." Um, yeah, I don't know if that helps. Sure. <laughs> Are you asking for yourself? Me, no, so, so meaning, meaning, I think. No, I'm not in that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that there are people who have no other choice. Yeah, I understand. But I think uh, for so many of us, we can we can arrange for a day off. So for myself, I can, I can I cannot I cannot work. I just have to have less interesting Sunday school lessons. <laughs> but I, I can't. It has to be perfect. <laughs> Becky, did you have a question? No, I was just going to comment that perhaps for people, like in those situations, it's not a full day of rest, but it is trying to find rest. It might not be a full day, but a moment, an hour. Oh, I agree. I think if you're a, a family with young children, day of rest, that's almost like a mockery. It's <laughs> an ironic thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like ceasing from your ordinary endeavors and... Um, you carve out time to enjoy God, enjoy family, enjoy relationships. I haven't had a true day of rest then in that sense in five years. <laughs> All right, so let's move on. Um, so if you look at uh, last week, 
we talked about the beauty of work, the design of work, and then you're saying, okay, this sounds so rosy. Come to my workplace. Um, you know, does the Bible have anything to say to that? And the answer is absolutely. Work is cursed, subject to the curse. Genesis three. Let me read it to you. So this is the the curse that God pronounces upon rebellion, partaking of the forbidden fruit. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Um, Cursed is the ground because of you. That's important. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Listen, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, notice, if you read the creation account of curse, work itself is subject to the curse. Right? The whole... So what is the fall? What happened in the fall? All of creation became... became, um, has become fallen. Right, uh, we talked about in the last Sunday school series on sexuality. Our sexuality is fallen. Um, relationships are fallen. Uh, the human body is fallen. That's why we we decay and we die. And something that's so core and vital to uh, human existence and human flourishing, work has become fallen. That's why um, God says the ground is cursed. Um, remember that gardening is the paradigm of all work. So when God says uh, the ground is cursed. He's saying all work from this point forward will have elements of toil and drudgery, so that in so that the output does not match input anymore. Um, and when when God says thorns and thistles, right? These are agricultural uh, elements that make farming difficult. I, I suppose I don't know. <laughs> um, my I like to garden. And uh, so one of the things I've been slowly doing is I've been rehabilitating my lawn. And uh, so I'll plant little uh, grass seedlings. And the vexation that I experience all the time (laughs) is uh, birds come and they eat. I'm not sure they're eating the seeds or they're eating the worms that that my freshly miracle grow soil (laughs) sod allows for. But they, they destroy at least 25% of my seedlings. So every morning I come out and I see this Armageddon, right? And I'm like, oh, so vex- vexing. I didn't know birds were a pest, right? <laughs> um, I want to get like a shotgun and just, you know, <laughs> just my lawn. Um, and so what we did was, for Halloween, Christina bought a scarecrow, right? And so I put a scarecrow on and it works. It's like reduced uh, the thorns and thistles. But anyways, there's thorns and thistles, right? Uh, work becomes uh, frustrating. And uh, so that input does not match output. I, I was at the bookstore and I saw this thing, which re- I thought was really curious, adult coloring books. Have you guys seen this? So I was like, what? What is this? And Kristen was like, oh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's therapy. And uh, so I was like, what? What kind of therapy is this? So I was reading it a little bit and I understand it's just like gardening, actually. So much of life in work, input does not match output. You put, you can put in five hours of work, and it could all be for nothing. <laughs> you can put in one hour of work, and then somehow it it 
it produces one hour of actual product. And but it's kind of random almost sometimes. I think what um, adult coloring books is so therapeutic is because everything you do in adult coloring book produces something, <laughs> and it's regular. And it, and and there's, so there's this 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 um, you can control the time. It's very therapeutic because you know why? The fact that we need adult coloring books is a sign of the fallenness of the human condition because because life is not like an adult coloring book, right? So there's this mismatch externally and internally. Um, internally, there's a mismatch all the time between uh, your desires and um, what you want to do and then the skill that you can you actually have. I talk to people all the time, and they say, I, I, "This is the career I want to pursue," but it's so frustrating. They can't seem to get there. The doors don't open for them, right? Um, why does that happen? That's the curse of, of life. Uh, the, the illustration that I'm getting here, um, that I have here, is uh, from the movie Amadeus, um, and one of the central characters is Salieri. If you've seen the movie. And Salieri, he dreams of being this beautiful composer. And uh, he can hear the music. I mean, he can recognize uh, brilliant music, but he can't get his mind to form the notes. He can't, he can't do it himself. All he produces is really mediocre stuff. The only thing that he has is the ability to appreciate and recognize beautiful music. And he says, why, why did God... He's confessing to this priest at the end of his life. He says, why did God do this to me? And the answer, if the priest doesn't have an answer, right? The priest is just stunned. The answer is, it's an element of the curse. Or what about external um, frustration? There's dysfunctional work environments. There's um, absurd, irrational policies. There's terrible bosses. You go to work, and you're so frustrated why um, company policy is so irrational. Why, why is it that... Um, Untalented, pe untalented people climb up and, and get promoted. Why is it that really good work gets punished? Um, why does that happen? And it's, the answer is it's the fall. Um, the matching illustration is Mozart, right? In the movie uh, um, Amadeus, Mozart, he's so brilliant. He's so talented. He's a genius. What happens in the movie? He dies in poverty. Nobody recognizes his talent, except Salieri. Salieri is so jealous He's like plotting his murder. So there you have the fallenness of, of the human condition. So, that, so that's the curse. Um, before I go to the next point, any, any questions on that? All right. So the curse is widespread, and it, and it reaches down everywhere. Um, and I said that the, the commission that we had is in the Garden of Eden is to make it into this garden city, right? Um, and we'll see that city building becomes corrupted and fallen uh, by ambition and by our rebellion. And let me read to you Genesis chapter 4. If you've read through Genesis and you read Genesis 4, uh, the passage I'm about to read to you, you always think it's some sort of weird, obscure passage, like it's just some randomness. But actually it's so profound and it speaks directly to the doctrine of, of work here. Uh, let me read it for you. Verse 17. So this is uh, the aftermath of Cain killing his brother Abel. Cain uh, goes into exile. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So that's very important, right? So it's Cain who builds the city, who builds a city, right? 
to Enoch was born uh, Irad, and Irad fathered uh, Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered uh, Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives, and the name of the one was uh, Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, so that's significant. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those of, of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zilla also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So that seems a little bit random, but it's very, very important. Remember, the commission was to build a city, and we were supposed to build the city of God. But what happens? Who actually builds a city? It's Cain. He builds a rival city, a city full of evil ambition. He builds the city of man. Because it says he named the city after his son. Right? The, uh, in Hebrew literature, when you name something, it means you're ascribing the glory, it, it, uh, uh, the purpose to. He doesn't name it after God. He names it after his son, after himself. And then notice, uh, Lamech's children, right? They, 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 it says they dwell in tents and have livestock, so they create, um, animal husbandry. It's like civilization, right? He, he discovered technology of animal husbandry. Um, uh, Jubal creates music. Uh, Tubal Cain uh, discovers um, metallurgy. And so all of these technologies, culture making, becomes what? Like it should have been discovered by humanity for the glory of God to build this great city of God. But instead, all of these uh, discoveries are made in human rebellion uh, against God by the children of Lamech for human glory, for human ambition. And that culminates in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, right? This enormous city uh, for humanity. Let us build ourselves a city and make a, make a name for ourselves, right? For, for them. And I think if you understand Genesis 4, it has enormous explanatory power because it explains the paradox of the human condition. Because when you look at humanity, right? Rebellion, in rebellion, lost um, in defiance of God, you see human brilliance, you see creativity. Why is that? If, if human beings are in rebellion against God, shouldn't we all be in caves, cowering, naked or something? Uh, and the answer is that we're made in the image of God, and so we, we, we have these gifts that God gave us to build this city, this, this garden city that we were always supposed to build, God embedded in our genes, embedded in the human consciousness, these gifts, these abilities to discover technology. But then, so we have that aspect, but then we see technology, every technology that has ever been created has been turned for evil and destruction, right? Um, so you have, for example, you know, discovery of atomic energy. It could, it could have wonderful use for energy and uh, health, but instead we're on the precipice always of worldwide destruction. Um, and so you have cultural development, economic development, but it's always, always in parallel with and, and coexists with uh, racism, sexism, marginalization of the poor. And so as a Christian, we, we look at all of this technological development, cultural development, and we don't see it as, oh, that's evil and that's wrong. Um, we're going to cloister ourselves and create this sort of enclave. Uh, we need to return back to nature, you know, or something like that. But rather, the, the Christian perspective is to look at all of the cultural, technological development, and we want to redeem it for Christ, for the healing of this world, uh, for the common good. 
Um, and therefore, if you have that understanding, you're going to hold in tension both the doctrines of creation and fall. Let me write this down. So this is very important. I think this really will help you. Um, so you have the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the fall. And they're both true at the same time. So creation is work as it was always intended to be. Right? Work in which you're flourishing, in which you're helping people, that's satisfying, that's fulfilling. And therefore, you should never degrade work um, as merely a means to income. You should never think of, uh, of, of a job. Um, I forgot who asked the question, but someone said, like, uh, what if you're in a married couple situation and one person does the fulfilling work but doesn't get paid? Oh, it was, okay. yes, Tina, I'm sorry. Um, and then one person is making all the money but not very happy. And uh, that's not an ideal situation. All work should be satisfying fulfilling, right? That's not to say the high-paying jobs like lawyering or, or um, financial services, um, what is it, are evil. They can be fulfilling and, and, and uh, satisfying but we, you should. So let me say this, and probably Jess can come right back at me. But why me? Because I'm anticipating your mind, John. Um, the the the. You should never work just for money, right? You should work. Um, you should think of your job as a service to the world. You should think of a, your job as a fulfilling your your image, your mandate, the way God created you to be useful to do to do work. Um, so, therefore, we should say no to cynicism and, and, and not become jaded. I think a lot, I remember so many, in every work environment I've ever been, people hated work. <laughs> um, I remember when I was in retail, I used to think, oh, if only I had a desk job, it would be so great, and just sat in a computer terminal and wrote code or something. Then I got that job. I sat at a computer terminal, I wrote code, and I realized it's just the same thing. Everyone is grumbling, everyone is complaining, and... I think uh, as a Christian, you don't you don't buy into that grumbling and complaining. Oh, work sucks. You know, oh, if I can only win the lottery. Ah, oh, you know, it's, it's somehow if I could escape and just have retirement. You say no to cynicism, no to jadedness. But on the other hand, you realize that the, the doctrine of false is all work is cursed. So you never. So you know what that means. You never buy into the hype. So you, you, you apply for a job, and then the uh, recruiter is like, oh, this job is going to be amazing. We're, gonna, we're doing amazing work, so meaningful. All the frustrations that you experienced in your past job will be gone, and th- this will be the perfect job. And uh, as a Christian, you never say, oh, this is it. You know that when you, when you go into that job, it's subject to the fall. So there will be frustration, there will be irrational work policies, there will be uh, terrible bosses, terrible co-workers. Um, and so you, you're never surprised, and so you always say uh, no to dreamy idealism. So I think as a Christian, you're, you're always in this tension, right, where, you never, um, where you're, you, you're never cynical. I think cynicism, by the way, is just a kind of uh, of uh, cowardice cuz cuz you don't want to you don't want to get hurt so you don't want to really love something cynicism is just self protection right like I, I don't care I, this job sucks um, but you love the work that you do 
But at the same time, you never give in to like this um, this uh, idealism where you think, oh, if only I had this. If I only had this job, I think a lot of, especially those of you in your twenties, you're dreaming of this job. You have this job in mind, and you tell yourself, if only I get there, I'll be happy. Well, you will not be happy. <laughs> that's, that, that's what the Bible tells us, right? All work is subject to the fall. You will not be happy. Um, so I think that will really help you. When you pursue your career, when you do your best and you, and you, and you advance, um, you will always know I'm, I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to arrive home. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you're not cynical. You're earnest. I think the gift of Christianity is that it makes you earnest. You know, earnest people are really easy targets of mockery because, you know, you see that they care about something and you can just poke at them and, like, mock them and debunk whatever they care about. Cynical people, you can't hurt them because they don't care about anything, right? Um, but you can't be cynical. You have to be earnest. You have to really care about your work. You'll be the one person at your job who says, I really believe in what I'm doing. Everyone's laughing at you. Everyone's cynical. But that's what it means to be a Christian, uh, Christian at your workplace. Any questions on that? Or any comments? How are we doing in time? I don't, I don't even have my watch. It's 10.45. How does this happen? Each time... <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to go quick. No more questions. <laughs> All right. Um, how do we uh, stay earnest in light of the constant temptation to be cynical? Um, the Bible gives us the hope of new creation. Um, not hope in this life, but hope in the next, in the life to come. Let me read to you Revelation 22, very end of the chapter, uh, end of the Bible. On either side of the river, the tree of life, right? Where did we see the tree of life before? We saw it in the Garden of Eden. The fact that the, the garden, we see it again in the new creation is a huge signal to us, right? That everything that humanity was supposed to do in the garden will be accomplished and consummated and fulfilled in the new creation, right? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit uh, each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we see this beautiful garden. And and remember that gardening is the paradigm of all work. And therefore, right, remember that work is not part of the curse. It's, I'm mean, sorry, work is not part of... Um, yeah, work is not part of the curse. It's part of creation. It happened before the curse. And therefore, listen to me, work will continue in the new creation. You know, a lot of people think, what is heaven going to be like? And you imagine it's going to be this leisure resort. You're going to sit on the beach side and drink an umbrella drink or something. It is not. People are very surprised. Um, you're going to work in a new creation. And if you understand the, the biblical doctrine of work, you're going to realize, wow, that, that is heaven. Um, psychologists have something called flow. Flow, or to put it in kind of our vernacular, it's like you're in the zone. I don't know if you've ever been in the zone at work where um, you're working on this project, you're fully engaged, it's, it's sufficiently challenging, but not too much so that you're stressed out of your mind. <clears throat> and then you're doing it, and then the whole day is gone, and you didn't even feel time. 
And then you're just like, I got to come in early tomorrow to, to, to get back onto it, right? Um, that happens so rarely. It's like these little glimpses when we're back in the garden and it's really good. In the new creation, we're going to be in zone all the time, right? We're going to experience flow all the time, and we're going to continue working. And uh, let me just uh, do this uh, uh, illustration. Let me give you this illustration. This is an illustration Tim Keller gives all the time. I love this illustration um, by J.R. Tolkien, Leaf by Nickel. Um, so J.R. Tolkien, you know, wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings. It took him, like, multiple decades to write it because he's such a perfectionist. Um, he was so frustrated uh, he wanted to give up multiple times so he wrote a short story called Leaf by Nickel here's the story Nickel is a painter and his ambition is to paint this beautiful mural of a tree and, uh, but he's such a perfectionist he's so dissatisfied he paints and then he, 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 um, he erases it away he's painting his entire life he paints a leaf and then he dies um and then he, he's on a train bound for heaven. And on the journey, he sees this beautiful tree, right, with its branches flowing, you know, swaying in the wind. The leaves are, are, are beautiful. And he recognizes that's his tree. And so he gets out and he's like, he's like in glory. He's, he's, he says, wow, this is a gift from God. And I think it's a beautiful imagery that Tolkien is giving us, which is that um, all our labors are not in vain. Uh, there's this great passage, 1 Corinthians 15. I truly love this passage. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 is about the, is about the doctrine of the, of the resurrection. And what does that tell us? It says this. It says that you should always do your work. If, if, if we believe that the world is going down in flames, if we believe that we're on the Titanic and the ship is about to go down, what's the point of rearranging the furniture? You've heard that analogy, right? We're not on the Titanic. We're on Earth, but there's going to be a new Earth. The, 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 the Earth as it's, it is now is not going to be destroyed and thrown away and we're just going to flee to heaven. Everything that's good and beautiful is going to be redeemed and, and it's going to come into the new creation. It's going to be part of eternity, part of the true reality. That's why uh, Paul says, always abound in the work of the Lord, right? Whatever you do for God, for the glory of God, with, with true faith, it says your labor will not be in vain. So if you're at your job and you feel like it's all for nothing, Right? If you're working on some sort of project, if you're, if you're an artist and you're working on some sort of uh, creation, you're, you're a writer, you're writing a book, um, and you feel so frustrated, all your efforts are not in vain because it will be redeemed. It will somehow be taken up into the new creation and it will be there to be enjoyed by all of humanity forever and ever as, a, as, a, as, a, as an eternal monument. Right? I think that's so encouraging. That should encourage everyone to do your best, to always work hard, to always be earnest, to uh, to serve with a full heart, um, never to give in to cynicism. And in this life, sometimes you build something, it'll burn down. But in the next life, it'll be there. I don't know if that is encouraging or, or helpful to you. Um, let me see how we're doing in time. Oh, okay. Not too terrible. Um, 
Any 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 questions on that point? So we'll be working in heaven. I I will I I will probably not be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll need a new job. Um, I'll probably be a gardener. <laughs> I thought um, the doctrine that we get from scripture um, regarding uh, revelations and uh, the new Jerusalem yeah. and the new the new um, is that we have eternal rest that we enter God's rest. Yes. So rest from sin, uh, rest from our enemies. Uh, rest from uh, Satan's temptations. Uh, but we're going to be sons of God. We're going to be, we're going to fully realize our imageness. What does it mean to be an image of God? It's not eternal relaxation. It's not, so heaven is not a day at the spa forever and ever in which you're getting massaged forever. Uh, you know what heaven is? Heaven is experiencing flow in the job that you were perfectly created for, having the skill sets that God has gifted you with, and experiencing no frustration, and creating beautiful things that um, that uh, benefit everyone for the common good, for the glory of God. That is the biblical vision of human, of, uh, of uh, human flourishing, human happiness, ultimate happiness. Right? So the Simpsons' vision of heaven is flawed on so many levels. But the Simpsons' vision of heaven is flawed on this level, which is it's not, it's not, you're, you're not going to be like oh, free from work, but that work will be redeemed. Because work was there in the Garden of Eden, right? Any any other questions? Yes. I have a question. Um, the, word, the word for rest in Hebrew, is yeah. it related to the word for peace in a lot of ways or I just noticed like because like rest from enemies to me that's like peace sure you know or like rest from um like not just not feeling stressed out about things that's peace yeah so So Shabbat it's it's the Hebrew word for cessation okay Um, rest very accurate is more okay okay so peace peace is a related term Uh yeah yeah good question Anything else? Um, all right. In the time that I have, should I even try? <laughs> um, um, all right. Let me. Oh, let me just say one thing, which is number three: be a signpost for Christ. Um, I want you guys also to be witnesses for Christ at work. By the way, that doesn't mean. Um, that means, by the way, that if you work excellently, if you're an earnest worker, if you're a person of integrity. Um, if you don't participate in sniping and tearing down people, but you're building people up even to the detriment of your own professional development or even your, of your uh, career, that's what it means to, to glorify God in your workplace. But you also need to be a signpost. You also need to point people to Christ. Let me tell you, avoid the two fallacies. I call it the obnoxious Christian and the ninja Christian. The obnoxious Christian is somebody who's very pushy about their faith. They're very insensitive. Um, they utterly lack humility and they don't listen and they just sort of pass out tracks and kind of like force um, force the dialogue. Uh, a lot of us don't want to be the obnoxious Christian. So we then resort to the ninja Christian, which is that uh, we blend in completely, we're camouflaged, no one can see us, uh, and we never talk about our faith because we don't want to offend people. And I want to say that that is cowardly, that's self-protective, because you're never willing to take a risk for Christ. 
So let me um, give you these outlines for how to be a witness to your coworkers. Pray for your pray for opportunities. Do you guys pray? Say, Lord, uh, please open doors for me. Because you know what we are in the workplace. We're like in communist China. The uh, you can't openly proselytize, but if your coworker asks you, then you're allowed to talk about your faith. It's kind of like that. Obviously, that's not. We have much more freedom than that. But then you'll resort to being an obnoxious Christian. So pray for opportunities. Be a good coworker. Be a good friend. Be a person with up uh, with a with a high reputation, so that people respect you. They'll come to you for counsel. And then let your witness come out organically out of friendship because you truly care for the person. Don't make it a project saying, my goal is to evangelize you. Um, you should make friendships at work. Um, like, a lot of times we just think, oh, work is for money. I'm just going to put my time in there and I'm out of there. No, you should make friends with your coworkers. And, and if you truly care about your friend, if you truly care about them, you will want to share with them the deepest things in your life. And then finally, take courage and share Christ. Um, and sometimes what that means is unavoidably you may lose the friendship um, because you may offend them even with all the, the caveats that I said right which is it comes out of a genuine friendship um, you're not being obnoxious but if you if you still present Christ you may lose the friendship so it takes courage you just have to say I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna speak up. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna say something. Um, I don't know if that helps. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you gave us this gift of work, uh, that we can uh, be your sons and uh, imitate you. Uh, but we also confess that so much of life, so, and including our work, is fallen, it's broken, it's frustrating. Um, so much of us hate our jobs. Help us to have a godly attitude about our jobs. Um, not that we can't look for another job, but in, while we're in the job that we have, help us to uh, serve sacrificially. Help us to do our very best to do things with excellence. Not just think in terms of our own personal profit or personal comfort, but think in terms of the common good. Think in terms of service to uh, our community, our coworkers, um, our, our customers, our clients. Um, help us to have that kind of attitude. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you guys.